0: The U.S. House passes a $79 billion package that boosts the child tax credit and includes tax breaks for businesses. It's Thursday, February 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Coming up, if approved by the Senate, the three-year deal passed by the House would lift many young Americans out of poverty.
1: There is no denying the fact that 16 million children will benefit immediately from the expansion of the child tax credit.
0: Also this hour, Maine is struggling to come up with alternatives for troubled kids in the justice system. I was thinking, oh, you
1: know, I'm getting all these charges and nothing's happening. I'll be fine.
0: Plus, members of Massachusetts' congressional delegation are worried about the future of financially troubled Stewart HealthCare.
1: They expressed their intent to exit the Massachusetts HealthCare
2: market.
0: Cloudy and 40s today.
3: It's 7:01 Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House of Representatives has voted overwhelmingly to pass a bipartisan tax package. NPR's Lexi Shapiro explains what's in the bill.
4: A key provision of the bill expands the child tax credit, which gives families with children a break on their federal tax bill for three years. The changes would allow more low-income families to use the credit and allow many families to receive a larger benefit. Still, some Democrats criticize the plan for not going as far as a previous tax credit put in place during the COVID pandemic. The Census Bureau found that version of the credit lifted more than 2 million children out of poverty. The package also restores tax breaks for businesses that Republicans had pushed for. It does not allow Americans to deduct more of their state and local taxes from federal filings, despite the efforts of New York Republicans who wanted to see that limit raised. Lexi Shapiro, NPR News, The Capitol.
3: In coming weeks, President Biden will visit Ohio, the site of the Norfolk Southern train derailment one year ago. NPR's Mara Eliasson reports, the White House says the president was invited to come to the community by the mayor of East Palestine. No specific date for the visit has been set yet, but when the president goes, he will meet with community members who were affected by the environmental damage caused by the derailment, which released millions of pounds of chemicals contaminating soil and water. Administration officials say that the Biden administration's response to the derailment was immediate and continuing. President Biden issued an executive order directing that Norfolk Southern rail be held accountable for the derailment and the long-term health effects in the community. Mara Liason, NPR News. A huge plume of moisture is slamming into California. National Weather Service meteorologist Andrew Orison says that will trigger two big storms.
5: Between the two atmospheric rivers, the
6: one that's currently coming into the state uh, today and tonight and the one that's going to be uh, coming in this weekend, between the two of them, we are going to be looking at Uh, some rather significant impacts I think for uh, flooding and so the one that occurs this weekend will be relatively strong it appears and there will be heavy rainfall associated with that and it will drive additional concerns for flooding.
3: The storm that's hitting California today has already triggered flood watches and advisories and there are wind advisories too. Some wind gusts today in central California could hit tropical storm strength. European Union leaders have unanimously voted to approve a mammoth aid package for Ukraine. It's worth more than $50 billion. Ukraine has been urging the EU to continue financial support as it fights Russia's invasion. The tranche of EU aid comes as the U.S. Congress has held up similar support to Ukraine. Congressional Republicans say they won't pass it without U.S. border security first. The U.S. Central Command says U.S. forces conducted strikes in Yemen yesterday against Houthi rebels. The targets were missiles and a ground control station. The Yemeni rebels have been firing on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. This is NPR.
0: I'm Rupa Chenoy. This is WBWAR in Boston. Today is day 10 of the teacher strike in Newton. That means it's the 10th day out of class for students. The school committee says it's exploring ways the city could make up those school days once the strike ends. That could include taking days out of April vacation. David Belfort is the father of two Newton public school students. He disagrees with the strike and worries that his high school age child will fall behind in advancement placement classes.
7: The exam is coming up, and they're not going to delay those deadlines. She has the ACT coming up, and the topic and the substance of the learning is being missed.
0: Other parents are supporting the Newton Teachers Association and its strike. The union says it's fighting for a contract that includes better parental leave policies and better pay for classroom aides. Some Roxbury residents are unhappy about losing access to the melnia Cass Recreational Complex. It's being used by the state to shelter migrant families. But community leaders are pledging support out of concern for those who've been sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport. More now from WB Mar's Paula
8: Mora. The state says the recreation space can host 400 people. 75 were expected to arrive yesterday. At a press conference, Senator Liz Miranda acknowledged officials are asking the community to sacrifice a great deal. But she said Roxbury is a place that cares for those in need. We are a people who help people in their worst moments, and we have always been that. The state says it will hire local businesses to provide food, laundry, and transportation services for the migrants. Officials have promised to improve the facility and return it to the public in June. For
0: 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. The MBTA is launching a campaign aimed at cutting down on transit worker assaults. A video for the campaign features bus drivers and encourages riders to use the MBTA CSAI app to report issues to transit police.
9: Just like you rely
10: on me to get you where you need to go, I rely on you. If you see something, say something.
0: T data show that bus drivers have faced more than 625 attacks over the last three years. Nearly three-fourths of those attacks were verbal. The T has already installed bus barriers throughout its fleet to protect drivers. The agency also plans to implement training for drivers to de-escalate tense situations. Even as we slog through winter, spring is close by. The Red Sox equipment truck will leave Fenway Park on Monday for the trip to JetBlue Park in Fort Myers, Florida. The first workout with pitchers and catchers will be February 14th.
11: It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for professionals seeking data research skills. Online info sessions, February 9th and 21st. Men and
0: women's pro hockey are both off tonight. The Celtics play the Lakers at the Garden. The game starts at 730. Cloudy today and warmer with highs in the mid-40s. Still mostly cloudy tonight. Temperatures fall to lows around freezing. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy again. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
12: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include ECMC Foundation, working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org.
2: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Steve Inskeep.
13: And I'm Layla Falden the House has overwhelmingly approved a deal to expand the child tax credit for three years.
2: It is expected to be quickly taken up by the Senate, and if signed into law, it would benefit 16 million kids and could lift as many as half a million out of poverty. The deal, which also contains substantial business tax cuts, is the result of negotiations between Republican Representative Jason Smith and Democratic Senator Ron Wyden in a rare moment of bipartisanship for this highly divided Congress. NPR's Eric McDaniel is here to tell us more. Good morning, Eric.
10: Good morning, good morning.
2: The
13: margins on this vote, 357 to 70. I mean, what was it about this bill that got so many people who constantly disagree to agree?
10: Well, it was a couple things. You're right. These margins were huge. And I love to be glib about Congress, maybe even more than the average person. This bill does need to still clear some hurdles, namely the U.S. Senate. But it's one of the bills that a lot of folks around the country will really feel. I do want to acknowledge that the child tax credit here is not quite as robust as its COVID-era counterpart, which lifted roughly 3 million children out of poverty. In fact, that led some progressives that you might have heard of, like Congressperson Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to oppose the bill. It also contains big tax cuts for corporations, which brought a lot of Republicans along. But folks who know, they're still saying that this bill is pretty monumental. And I think you saw that on the scoreboard last night. It passed with huge majorities of both parties.
13: I mean, I think it's also worth saying, though, it had to pass with huge majorities because a small number of opposition Republicans were ready to kill it, right?
10: That's right. Like we've talked about before, there's a faction of the House Republican Conference that sees bipartisan legislating as failure and oppose all but the most staunchly conservative proposals. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That opposition from the House Freedom Caucus and their allies, they blocked a procedural step, which meant the deal had to pass under something called suspension of the rules, which is basically a two thirds majority of the House, which it got, like we said. But in addition to those, Progressive oppositions and the opposition from anti compromise Republicans, there were also some blue state Republican members, folks like Anthony D'Esposito of Long Island, who hoped to push for more tax relief in places like New York with higher state taxes.
13: Was this bill backed by the top Republican Speaker Mike Johnson?
10: So this is... Interesting to me. Speaker Johnson was hesitant to schedule the bill for a vote because of the internal Republican disagreements I mentioned. And when it did get scheduled, he put out a statement praising the tax cuts without mentioning the child poverty measures at all. He did eventually vote for it. But this suspension of the rule stuff, which is just another way to say he needs Democratic votes to get things passed, is really not a tool he likes using because it upsets some people in his party and it could eventually cost him the job like it did Speaker McCarthy.
13: So there is also bipartisan negotiation over immigration in the Senate, and that was looking promising for a while, but this time House Republicans could doom the bill. What's different about those negotiations?
10: You're right. These are similar processes in a lot of ways. They're bipartisan negotiations without the involvement of party leaders, sort of a bottom-up thing, but the political pressures are quite different. Immigration is a very visible political issue in the presidential campaign. GOP frontrunner Donald Trump has been focused on killing that deal, posting about it online a lot, and the child tax credit has just not gotten that kind of focus for him. And you see that in Speaker Mike Johnson's rhetoric after Republicans insisted Ukraine and Israel be tied to this immigration reform proposal. Johnson used his first floor speech as speaker on this floor of the House yesterday to try and kill the immigration deal before it even leaves the Senate. So I think it's true, probably true, to say Republicans want to address the very real issues facing the U.S. immigration system, record number of migrants arriving at the U.S. southern border, but a lot of them want to see Trump elected more.
13: I'm hmm. PR Congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Thanks, Eric. Thank you.
14: We're listening to campaign speeches by President Biden. Let's go, Joe!
1: Let's Thank you, thank you, thank
14: you. The president has intensified his campaign for a second term. Last week, we analyzed four speeches former President Trump delivered on four days. And today, we analyze four speeches by President Biden across five days, one of them near the old Civil War battlefield at Manassas. Hello, Virginia. Biden, like Trump, has riffs he's repeated for years, like the oldies of a rock band on tour. In each case, the oldies speak to the political brand. We heard one of Trump's last week when he read lyrics of an actual old song comparing immigrants to snakes. Biden's four speeches repeatedly talked of his dad, who... Taught me a very important lesson. He'd say,
1: Joey, this is a God's truth. A job is about a lot more than a paycheck.
14: It's about decency. It's about your dignity. In both Manassas and in Superior, Wisconsin, Biden said Republican tax cuts for the wealthy would not have helped his dad. And, uh, but the trickle-down economics didn't trickle down much on my dad's kitchen table. The president was in Wisconsin to show one of the results of an infrastructure law. For decades, people talked about replacing this bridge, but it never got done until today. His enthusiasm for infrastructure comes through often. In the four speeches we analyzed, Biden promoted his economic policies, which have not scored well in polls. Although inflation is dropping and unemployment is low,
1: if you notice, all the major, all the major economists we're talking about is going to be a recession next week, next month. But all of a sudden, we're seeing the Lord. I'm a little worried. Some of the major economists
14: in American history are now giving me credit. It's like, oh God, what's going on? And if his likely opponent is called a populist, Biden took a few populist shots of his own.
1: Raise your hand if you think the tax code is fair. In 2020, 55 of the Fortune 500 company corporations paid zero in taxes, zero in taxes.
14: A big theme of the four speeches we analyzed was abortion rights, though Biden had trouble getting his message out when protesters interrupted. Joe and I had a chance to sit down. Biden supporters drowned out the words genocide Joe, a reference to Biden's support for Israel in its war against Hamas. The president waited calmly for the noise to subside. In the four speeches we analyzed, he did not bring up the war that has divided his political coalition.
1: This is gonna go on for a while, they got this plan. The reason women are being forced to travel across state lines for health care is Donald Trump. The reason their family members are trying to get help them to get threatened with, with prosecution is because of Donald Trump. And the reason their
14: fundamental right has been stripped away is Donald Trump. In 2016, Donald Trump explicitly promised to appoint Supreme Court justices who would overturn the right to abortion, which they did.
1: I could go on. But look. And let there be no mistake, the person most responsible for taking away this freedom in America is Donald Trump. (laughs) Listen, Listen to what he says. Trump says he's proud that he overturned Roe v. Wade. He said, and I quote, there has to be punishment for the women exercising the reproductive freedom.
14: Back in 2016, Trump did say there has to be some form of punishment for abortion. His campaign later backed off that. Biden used to avoid criticizing Trump by name, but now he does as he seeks to make this election about Trump. In the four speeches we analyzed, he said Trump more than 40 times. Trump has questioned Biden's mental state and Biden now questions Trump's.
1: By the way, have you noticed? He's a little confused these days. He apparently
14: can't tell the difference between Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. Biden was referring to a speech in which Trump misidentified who was Speaker of the House during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. When we analyzed Trump's speeches last week, we heard that one of his big themes is immigration. Biden spoke much less on that issue, as anxiety about migration has undermined his support. Bipartisan legislation being worked out in the Senate did give him one thing to say.
1: It'll also give me, as president, the emergency authority to shut down the border until it could get back under control. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly.
14: By shutting down the border, Biden appeared to mean a provision that would not close the border, but would let him restrict new claims for asylum. Biden was speaking in Columbia, South Carolina. It's in a state where black Democrats formed the heart of his coalition. The state was also a battlefield in the Civil War which ended in 1865, but which Americans have fought out in various ways ever since.
1: There's a second lost cause emerging in America. The first lost cause perpetuated the lie that slavery wasn't the cause of the Civil War. And we've been paying a price for that lie for generations. The second lost cause is Trump's big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. we cannot allow that lie to live either, because it threatens our very democracy. Yes. Folks, there are truth and they are lies. Lies told for power, lies told for profit. We must call out these lies with a voice that is clear and unyielding. The Bible teaches we shall know the truth and the truth shall set us free.
14: In four speeches, Biden used the word freedom 15 times. It was his common theme. He mentioned the freedom to vote, reproductive freedom, and the freedom to go to school or to worship without fear of assault weapons. He's using a word that old-style, small-government Republicans once used a lot more. In the speeches we analyzed from both candidates, it was Biden who used it more often, although Trump did say it and referred to his own freedom, which he says prosecutors want to take away. We should mention that we've been inviting both candidates for interviews on NPR news. Donald Trump is the candidate who has spoken with us most recently. He took our call two years ago. President Biden has declined all one-on-one interviews on NPR for more than four years since December, 2019. Invitations to both remain open. This is NPR News.
15: Good
0: morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of a massive bipartisan bill passed by the U.S. House that would expand the child tax credit and restore corporate tax breaks. Also, EU leaders have reached an agreement to create a 50 billion euro fund for Ukraine. And in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the Department of Education has announced another delay to FAFSA. That means families and students will have, have to wait even longer for financial aid officers offers from colleges and universities it's
5: 719 hey it's Ben Brock Johnson executive producer of WBUR podcasts my mom turns 81 years old this month she is many things a poet an activist an extremely creative cook who makes pink bread with my daughter every week among her tireless edits her experiments in the kitchen good and not so good her efforts to raise awareness about our climate, my mom somehow raised me and my older brother. This Valentine's Day, I'm thinking about what Herculean feet's decades of love can do. I'm so thankful for what my mom has given me and for what she's given the world. If there's someone from your life and you want to tell them how much you love them this Valentine's Day in a meaningful way, Consider sending them Winston flowers from WBUR, and your support will help us tell more stories every day. Check out our choices at WBUR.org.
0: Highs in the mid-40s today under overcast skies. It falls to the low 30s tonight, and the clouds stick around. Still mostly cloudy to end the week tomorrow. We'll have highs in the low 40s.
16: It's 36 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive, Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events, with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at EasyCater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition
13: from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin.
2: For chef, cookbook author, and TV host, Carla Hall, food doesn't just keep you alive. It's a delicious link to history and memory. It's about making ice cream and tacos and barbecue with family, and about the journeys of ingredients and people from all over the world.
15: Ooey gooey butter cake is one of Ample Hill's most famous flavors. They've mixed in cream cheese and house-made bits of St. Louis-style ooey gooey butter cake. Mm.
2: And this right here tastes like heaven. Now, she is telling those stories in a new six-part series streaming on Max. It's called Chasing Flavor, where she digs into the history, some of them surprising, of some of the foods Americans love most. And she's here with us to tell us all about it. Good morning, Chef. Good morning, Diva. Carla Hall. (laughs) Good morning, Michelle. Tough job you have. You got to eat a lot of amazing food, tacos, chicken pot pie. I'm trying to be mad that I was not invited. (laughs) But it sounds like you
15: had a really fun time. I had an amazing time. And you know... I've done my job. Yes, I did my job by traveling to these places, but I really did my job if you wanted the thing that I'm talking about after you watch it.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, we all did. As I said, you go places and you talk about the history of the thing, but you also talk about what it is and how it is accomplished. And this is a clip that I want to play where you are at Ample Hills Ice Cream in Brooklyn, New York, and you're explaining the different types of ice creams.
15: Premium ice cream versus a regular ice cream is the air that's whipped into it. So if you take a pint of your ice cream and a pint of regular ice cream, when yours melts, it may be here. and If another one melts, it's way down here
5: yeah. because of all the
17: air. Yeah, we call that overrun in the ice cream business and we keep our overrun extra low and it gives us a good chew and a good mouthfeel that yes. we're really fond of.
2: So you're talking about, I guess, the gastronomy and the history. You talk about this is how it's accomplished. But then you take us on this trip. You start in the U.S., as we just said, and then you end up in Turkey. I wanted to give credit to the
15: cultures that had a hand in the dish, because so often we we know the latest version, but we don't understand the history. And then we're okay with that. And I'm like, I'm not okay with that, especially as a Black person. You know, and a lot of our history is wrapped up in the culture of American food. And so when we were coming up with and researching,
2: we were looking for different voices historically. Who was telling the story? There's a a person you introduced us to named Augustus Jackson, who is credited as the father of American style ice cream. He was an enslaved chef at the White
15: House. And so he left to go to Philadelphia. And one of the things that we tell about the ice cream story is to put egg in it or to take egg out. So there's the frozen custard that we think about. But Augustus Jackson decided to take the egg out. And he was also instrumental in the churning machine, like adding salt to the ice and the water to make it colder, creamier, and make it cold faster. So that was his invention. And what was so interesting to me that I didn't really think about the ice cream without the egg is philadelphia style ice cream and that became american style ice cream and then it just is ice cream so one of the things about our history as we go along we drop things so we dropped philadelphia it was american style then we drop american so it's just ice cream so the language and the history and the
2: story is no longer in the word or the term. One of the other things that has gotten dropped is the role that enslaved people played in developing some of these very much loved foods. Exactly.
15: And it's said about Augustus Jackson that he didn't patent this the invention, ice cream, churn, the ice cream, the ice cream churn, maker. Right? And so who, what black man was patenting anything back at that time, right? So there was another person, uh, there was a white woman who had the patent on it. And so these stories are really important. It was important for me as uh, a Black person to discover some of these um, stories. It's important to talk
2: about who brought these flavors forward. And so where everyone gets credit. Well, yeah, you had just in the ice cream episode alone, you started in Brooklyn, New York, and then you go to Philadelphia, which is like one of the original ice cream makers and then you go to Europe and then you go to Turkey and then you point out the difference between like France and Italy and just how these foods have moved yes. around the world.
15: Yes. Uh-huh. And and what I realized is culture is the butterfly effect of food. Mm-hmm. So when people move to a particular place, they take up space and residence and they take what is there and things change and then people move somewhere else. So you can't do it without people. And when you think about, you know, the country being a melting pot and we're talking about everybody sitting at the table, but literally through history, everyone was at the table because that's why we
2: have the food that we have. We've been talking about ice cream. That's the first episode, but you also have tacos, barbecue, chicken pot pie, hot chicken and shrimp and grits how did you pick the topics i would love to say that was all
15: about my desires and wishes but there's also a network so we had an, an executive so we're going back and forth so certain things that were on my list didn't make it but i knew i wanted to do ice cream because i love ice cream and it's it's also we were looking at what are some of the beloved dishes in america but we were looking for the surprise Um, I wanted to do chicken pot pie because it runs parallel with my culinary journey. What surprising fact can you tell us about chicken pot pie? We... We're influenced by England for our pot pie, and then when I was in Jamaica, they're influenced by England with their pot pie, but there are other people there, so they're Africans and they're Indians and you know East Indians, and so that's why they have the curry and all of those flavors in their pot pie. And and again, talk about the butterfly effect. We didn't get that because that's not who was here in America. The other thing that I loved going to Rome and seeing this crust that was a pot, the crust is a pot and then you had this soup inside, it was literally a chicken pot pie. And I was blown away. I left feeling like I want to do a companion cookbook, taking the journey and bringing it into a new dish today that gives everyone credit along the way.
2: Okay, that was chef and best-selling author Carla Hall talking about her latest series. It's called Chasing Flavor. It streams on Macs beginning today. Carla Hall, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, there's a growing fight over the FDA's delayed plan to ban menthol in cigarettes. It's 7.29.
18: WBUR supporters include ThoughtForms Custom Builders. Committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The European Union has approved a $54 billion package of economic and military aid to Ukraine. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban, a supporter of Russian President Vladimir Putin, was among the EU's 27 members voting in favor of the package. Previously, Orban held up that aid to Kiev. Negotiations continue in Congress on President Biden's request to send another $60 billion in U.S. aid to Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg was in Alabama yesterday to get a look at a Lockheed Martin manufacturing plant in Troy. Emily Mosier with Troy Public Radio has more.
19: Lockheed Martin has provided weapons systems for Ukraine since the war began, including the crucial Javelin anti-tank missile. Stoltenberg pointed out that the US is now giving less aid.
20: The United States has criticized NATO allies for not spending enough on defense, and rightly so. And I commend the US leadership on uh, this important issue. But things have changed.
19: Stoltenberg told the audience of Lockheed Martin employees that NATO will be buying weapons from the US until President Putin accepts Ukraine as a sovereign nation. For NPR News, I'm Emily Moser in Troy, Alabama.
6: This is NPR News from Washington. This is
0: WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Chenoy. The Massachusetts State Senate is set to vote on a major gun reform package today. The legislation would tighten the state's assault weapons ban, prohibit people from carrying guns in certain public buildings, and crack down on unregistered so-called ghost guns. WBWAR's Walter Wuthman reports.
5: The Senate package differs slightly from an even more expansive gun reform bill passed by the House this fall. And unlike the House package, it's supported by the Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association. Bill sponsor, Senator Cynthia Cream, says the proposal will further reduce gun violence in a state that's already ranked among the safest in the country.
3: Massachusetts has really been a first. We've done a good job, but certain things have changed since we did our laws. And like everything else, they needed to be updated.
5: Gun owners and Second Amendment groups criticize the legislation as overreaching and unnecessary. Senate and House leaders say they want to send a compromise bill to Governor Moore Healy by the end of the session. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The city
0: of Boston's climate chief is stepping down from her role after three years. Reverend Mariama White-Hammond says she plans to devote more time to her role as the lead pastor at Dorchester's New Roots A.M.E. Church. She says she's proud of her work on programs that created green jobs for young people and regulated emissions from large buildings. White-Hammond is also glad she brought some spirituality to her work.
21: My hope is that I have pushed not just the staff, but also community members to ask, how do we make decisions about resources when at times it feels like there's not enough? How do we bring the kind of creativity that says, I don't think Creator would have given us a situation where we cannot do the right thing. Her
0: last day with the city will be April 26th. Attorneys for men accused of buying sex in an alleged brothel ring in Cambridge and Watertown want private communication with the court. That's according to new filings in the case reviewed by the Boston Globe. It also comes as attorneys are fighting to keep initial hearings private. Those hearings were scheduled for last month, but they were postponed by the state's highest court. WBOR was among several local news outlets that petitioned the court to make the initial hearings public. It's 733.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center. Presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert, February 9th and 10th. Tickets at TheUmbrellaArts.org. It's hockey's all-star break. In basketball, LeBron James is
0: questionable for tonight's game as the Los Angeles Lakers are in town to take on the Celtics. Tip-off is at 730. Cloudy with highs in the mid-40s today. Temperatures fall to the low 30s tonight and the clouds will stick around. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning
13: Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden
2: and I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Families and students who have already seen delays in getting the financial aid information they need to help pay for college will have to wait even longer now for those offers from colleges and universities. That's because earlier this week the US Department of Education announced yet another delay in an already chaotic financial aid season. NPR's Corey Turner has been following these developments and he's with us now to tell us more about it. Good morning, Corey. Good morning, Michelle. Actually, not such a good morning because, you know, people who are in this world of waiting for aid offers know this. But for people who don't, this is a very big deal for students and families who've already been waiting for weeks, even months longer than usual. So if you just start by explaining why that is and what's behind this new delay.
12: Yeah, you bet. So normally colleges can start making financial aid offers not long after students fill out the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And in the past, as you know, that's been as early as October. This year, though, the FAFSA didn't come out until the end of December. And the department said it wouldn't send colleges the FAFSA data they need until the end of January. And then earlier this week, at the last minute, it changed that to March. And what that means, Michelle, really, for students and families is that they're likely going to have to wait now until April at the earliest for those college financial aid offers.
2: But colleges... Don't colleges traditionally require students to commit by May 1st?
12: Yeah, many do. Most do. There is no margin for error left in the traditional admission schedule. And I have heard a lot of concern about this delay's potential impact, especially on lower income high school seniors who may be on the fence about college. You know, several college administrators and parents told me the longer it takes for aid offers to reach these students, the more likely they are to just give up on the idea of college. Uh, Scott Scarrow is the financial aid director at United Tribes Technical College in North Dakota, and he told me he really worries about these students.
23: If they're not getting real solid communication or communication that changes on them, they may just go find some low paying job that's gonna pay the bills now and they'll just give up on school.
12: Michelle Scarrow told me he doesn't want the seniors of 2024 to be a kind of lost generation. And the irony here though, is that this setback this week is largely because the Ed Department is fixing a mistake in the FAFSA that would have hurt many of these same students.
2: Right, people may remember you were on this program three weeks ago talking about this mistake that the Ed Department had made. Yeah,
12: a mistake that would have cost these students $1.8 billion in federal student aid, especially lower income students. So we can't forget that there is actually good news here that the department finally committed to fixing the mistake. The problem is the fix will take time, money, and human resources that are already in short supply.
2: So you've been talking with a lot of financial aid offices at colleges and universities across the country. What are they telling you?
12: I mean, at first it was frustration I was hearing, now it's exasperation. Uh, In fact, the timing has gotten so bad that a host of higher ed groups yesterday called on colleges to simply step back from that traditional May 1st deadline. They want schools to give students and families more time to consider their options once those letters do finally start going out.
2: That is NPR's Corey Turner. Corey, thank you.
12: You're welcome, Michelle.
13: U.S. stocks have been soaring in recent weeks. But in China, the market has been headed in the opposite direction. Indexes of Chinese shares have had a rough start to the year. And they're down 20%, 30%, or even more from 12 months ago. The government in Beijing is starting to pay attention. But as NPR's John Ruich reports from Shanghai, turning things around won't be easy.
7: In a stock trading hall at a brokerage called Red Tower Securities, retirees gather in the afternoon to swap rumors and make a few trades. It's cold, wet, and gray outside, and the mood inside isn't much better. Investor Zhang Huijuan says it's been brutal.
13: Lots of people have lost money.
7: She starts pointing at a gaggle of her friends.
13: She
24: lost money.
13: She lost money. She lost money.
7: China's benchmark CSI 300 index is down more than 5 percent since the start of the year. And it's off about 45 percent since its peak in early 2021. By some estimates, six trillion dollars have been wiped out in the slide. Zhang's friend feels the pain.
25: How can you have a good
26: Lunar New Year without money? Our kids have been laid off, they're unemployed, and here we are stuck in this market.
7: The Lunar New Year, China's biggest holiday, is just around the corner. But analysts say this problem is going to take a lot longer to fix. Robin Xing is chief China economist at Morgan Stanley.
17: As economists, we tend
5: to believe stock market is a proxy of economy.
7: Xing says the Chinese economy faces a number of problems, but the most concerning for markets is deflation. The consumer price index is up, but he points to a thing called the GDP deflator. It's a measure of inflation that includes investment along with prices.
8: It has been in negative territory for three quarters in a row.
27: That's the longest and the deepest deflation since the 1998
7: Asian financial crisis. The worst deflation in a generation. Xing says it's driven by weak demand. That's been underpinned by sluggish economic growth in the wake of the pandemic and government policies to reduce debt, especially in real estate. Businesses have been cutting back on spending and hiring. The authorities in China have been taking piecemeal steps to revive the economy, and lately they've stepped up efforts to stop the bleeding in the stock market. Winnie Wu is China strategist at Bank of America in Hong Kong.
21: I think for the past week or so, these policies coming out, it sends a message that government cares about the market.
7: China's cabinet pledged more forceful measures to boost confidence in the market, regulators limited short selling, and Bloomberg News reported that the authorities are preparing a stabilization fund worth around $280 billion to prop up shares. So far, the effects have been limited. But Wu says she thinks government intervention will ultimately work, at least like it did in 2015, during the market's last big nosedive.
21: This time it's probably the same thing, in the sense that these policies are good enough to stop the downside, but it's not good enough, or it's not even intended to drive you a rally or drive you a big bull market.
7: For that, she says, China has to address its macroeconomic challenges. Deflation, a property crisis, low confidence in consumption, and unanswered questions about what sectors are going to propel the Chinese economy into the future. 35-year-old Alex Wang thought he had that figured out. In 2020, he put some of his savings into mutual funds focused on new energy, pharmaceuticals, and liquor. He says he doubled his money by the next year, but has lost it all since, and then some. No,
9: <laughs> I won't invest anymore. This kind of lesson... You only need to learn
7: once. For the moment, though, he's holding on to his shares, waiting for the market to bounce just a little so he can sell. John Ruwich NPR News, Shanghai.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up the top of the hour here on WBWAR's Morning Edition, a growing rift between Ukraine's president and his military chief of staff is threatening to divide Ukrainian society at a crucial time. Overcast and mid-40s today, mostly cloudy and low-30s tonight. Low-40s for our Friday tomorrow and still mostly cloudy. It's 36 degrees
11: in Boston. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, kf.org. The number of
0: businesses going bankrupt in Massachusetts increased more than 50 percent last year. Data from the federal court system shows 294 businesses filed for bankruptcy last year. Officials say economic uncertainty could have added to the increase. Bankruptcy filings are also on the rise nationally. Across the country, they rose nearly 17 percent on average last year. A Quincy-based nurse staffing software platform is announcing its latest round of layoffs. And Telecare tells the Boston Business Journal it cut jobs amid a reorganization. The company says those who were laid off got severance, extended health care benefits, and help finding a new job. The company is not saying how many people were laid off. A popular Middle Eastern bakery in Cambridge plans to expand into Alston. Sofra is opening its new bakery on Harvard Street. Owners say the new location has a bigger kitchen and more seating. It plans to open this summer. It's 744.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography, Kaufman.org And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR.
2: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falden.
13: Efforts to ban menthol cigarettes and cigars have always been entwined with race. The flavor is most heavily consumed in black communities and is a big reason why black men face the highest rate of lung cancer. But when the federal government banned flavored tobacco 15 years ago, it left menthol on the market. The Biden administration has since put off implementing a ban. and Yuki Noguchi reports.
24: Lincoln Mondi grew up in Texas in a biracial family. His mother's white family used regular tobacco, but not his black
5: father. My dad exclusively smoked menthol cigarettes. Menthol was such a part of Black culture, and I knew that Black people smoked menthol, and that was just a fact.
24: Mondi turned his curiosity about menthol into a documentary for The Truth Initiative, an anti-smoking advocacy group. He realized his racial associations with menthol came from decades of targeted marketing in Black magazines like Ebony or from cultural events in Black neighborhoods.
5: Cool Cigarettes hosted this jazz festival in Detroit
23: for years, right?
24: Philip Gardner is a public health activist and co-chair of the African-American Tobacco Control Leadership Council.
23: Today, over 85% of African-American adults who smoke cigarettes smoke menthol cigarettes. And that's because of the
14: predatory marketing.
24: He says women and Latino people were also marketed menthol's cooling properties, which makes it easier to inhale deeply.
23: The more deeply you inhale, the more nicotine and toxins you take in, the more addicted you become.
24: And the more lethal they are. Anti-smoking advocates point to menthol as a clear contributor to racial disparities in health, specifically cancers. The Food and Drug Administration was set to enact a long-awaited ban on menthol cigarettes and cigars last August. The White House since delayed it until March, angering activists like Gardner.
23: It's ridiculous. Thousands of lives are being lost because of the inactivity of the FDA and now the White House.
24: Menthol has become a flashpoint of controversy, dividing Black leaders. Gardner blames the delays on the industry, he says, is wielding its financial influence within the Black community. It recently sponsored a poll finding a menthol ban would sway more Black voters against President Biden. One of the most vocal and powerful voices against menthol bans is civil rights activist Reverend Al Sharpton. Sharpton and his group National Action Network didn't respond to requests for comment, but they previously acknowledged working with and receiving funding from the industry.
23: Smoking is banned for your health, no question about it. But if it's a health issue, why ain't you banning all cigarettes?
24: In lobbying against a federal ban, Sharpton repeated his argument that it would lead to more over of Black people. Lincoln Mondi, the filmmaker, says coming from respected leaders like Sharpton, Messages that tap into existing fears about policing can be deeply confusing and divisive for the Black community.
5: My granny has pictures of Al Sharpton on her mantle along with Jesus. Especially for our elders, like you have Black leaders that are sowing this tobacco PR line around policing and around sort of like, they're just trying to take things away from Black people. Mondi
24: says the delays have already handed the industry a win. Since places like California and Massachusetts banned menthol, the tobacco industry started selling menthol-like flavors that aren't technically menthol, and therefore not subject to those new laws. He says a similar end run could happen around any national ban if it takes effect. Yukinaguchi, NPR News.
13: This is NPR News.
0: It's a Thursday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20 here on Morning Edition, informal groups in Chicago are trying to help thousands of migrants arriving with severe trauma after surviving harrowing dirt journeys. And here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The European Union has approved a more than $54 billion aid deal for Ukraine. The Department of Education is announcing another delay to FAFSA as students and families wait for financial aid officer offers from colleges. And in Massachusetts, students in Newton are out of school for a tenth day as the teacher strike there continues. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBR. App. Mid-40s and cloudy today. Still overcast tonight as temperatures fall to around freezing. Low 40s to end the week tomorrow. It'll be mostly cloudy. It's 36 degrees in Boston.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Rose Art Museum, with no ordinary love. Painter Salman Tours' exploration of tradition and intimacy. More at brandeis.edu slash rose. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from
22: WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Megna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The debate continues over the fate of Stewart HealthCare's nine hospitals in Massachusetts. State and federal officials say they expect to see plans from Stewart soon for its Massachusetts hospitals, and members of the state's congressional delegation have been weighing in. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports.
28: Representative Stephen Lynch says Stewart executives told congressional staffers last week the company plans to leave Massachusetts.
1: They expressed their intent to exit the Massachusetts healthcare market.
28: Lynch says Stewart executives indicated the situation is urgent at four of its Massachusetts hospitals. He interprets that to mean that those facilities will likely close soon, but he says the company didn't provide any timeline. Lynch says he's surprised by the extent of Stewart's problems.
1: The delegation together has, we've directed, I think, over $150 million to the Stewart healthcare network in Massachusetts over the past few years. I was expecting that we would receive some type of notice if they were in, in dire straits.
28: Representative Lori Trahan brought up Stewart during a congressional health care hearing yesterday. She said for-profit health care companies like Stewart are harming patients, especially her constituents who rely on some Stewart hospitals.
25: Families in my
28: district are the ones
25: who are being told
28: that they have to pay the price. Stewart did not respond to requests for comment. The companies only said that low reimbursement rates for publicly insured patients jeopardize its Massachusetts operations. Lawmakers say Stewart has also cited the $50 million it owes to its landlord. Stewart sold its Massachusetts Hospital real estate to the company Medical Properties Trust, or MPT. Stewart then leased the property back. Real estate investment trust analyst Robert Simone with the research firm Hedgeye says MPT has loaned Stewart millions.
12: The only reason why Stewart is failing right now, in my view, and the math kind of bears it out, is that MPT cannot afford to loan any more money to Stewart.
28: Several lawsuits suggest Stewart has other significant debts. One of the largest alleges that Stewart owes more than $45 million to a health care staffing firm. Stewart's already in the process of closing New England's Sinai Hospital in Stoughton. At a state hearing last night, Stewart officials re-released the hospital closing announcement from December. It said Stewart cannot afford to keep the facility open. State officials say they are in talks with Stewart and are working to protect health care and preserve jobs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Three
0: years ago, Maine lawmakers wanted to put the state at the cutting edge of a national juvenile justice movement. The legislation would have closed the last youth prison and built a community based system that focused on rehabilitating teens. But Governor Janet Mills vetoed the bill because of her concerns about public safety. Since then, the state hasn't developed a comprehensive plan and problems with juveniles have persisted. Callie Ferguson has been investigating this issue. She's a New York Times reporting fellow and reporter for the Bangor Daily News, and she joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. So could you just start out by telling us what's been happening over the past several years with Maine's juvenile justice system? Sure. So Maine has dramatically
27: reduced its youth prison population over the last decade or so. And in fact, the purpose of Maine's juvenile justice system is about rehabilitating youth at home when possible, so long as it's safe. Maine only has one youth prison left. It's known as Long Creek, and some people want to shut it down entirely. That's based on a lot of research that shows that traditional prisons like Long Creek aren't as effective at protecting public safety as other kinds of rehabilitative intervention. And Long Creek itself has had chronic problems with staffing and riots.
0: So what do advocates think is causing those problems?
27: So... Here's the thing. When you move away from a prison-based approach to juvenile crime, you really need a robust array of other kinds of prevention and intervention services in the community that hold accountable and support those teens another way. And fixing this issue is complex. Maine is different than a lot of states, most states, in fact, like Massachusetts, where the juvenile justice system is under the state agency that also oversees those other services. In Maine, The corrections department runs the juvenile justice system, but other state agencies are largely in charge of programs for at-risk youth.
0: And with these lack of services, where are police and parents sending their kids who are violent or in need of help? Increasingly, emergency rooms at main hospitals are these de
27: facto holding tanks for some teens in crisis. Some will end up there for days, even weeks, because their families are afraid to take them home. I spoke to staff at a small hospital that's had to create a locked three-room unit in recent months because they've seen just an increase in younger patients with high levels of aggression, some of whom required sedation or physical restraints. Here's what Dr. Nir Harish, a physician at Penn Bay Medical Center near Rockland, had to say.
10: And now I feel like I'm running a correctional facility, which is not something I'm trained for.
27: Nier worries these prolonged stays only add to kids' trauma. The rooms are windowless. that There's no way for the hospital to even let them go outside. This is a small hospital, so there isn't even an adolescent psychiatrist on staff that can provide some kind of treatment in the meantime.
10: We know that we haven't solved anything. We know they'll be back, that we're just putting a Band-Aid on it and hoping for the best.
27: You can
0: definitely hear the frustration in his voice.
27: Yeah, and Rockland has seen a surge in juvenile crimes in the last few years, mostly involving youth in some kind of distress. Can you go into that a little bit more? Like what crimes are we talking about? Sure. I, I talked to a pair of teens who started getting into trouble after being kicked out of school and this is them chatting.
1: Like just doing a bunch of drugs, and yeah. just stealing
9: stealing. stealing everything I could think of. Yeah. Cars, motorcycles. Well, yeah, but we'd walk down the street wheeler. And see like
17: a four-wheeler or something.
27: That's Timmy and Harry. They were both sixteen at the time. We're only using their first names at their parents' request.
17: We were bored, and we were always like just like nobodies, and then that kind of made us feel like a somebody.
27: In Timmy's case, he was also stealing to support a drug habit, and this pattern emerged where the local cops would charge one of them or both of them with a crime, mostly misdemeanors, and then it would be up to the Department of Corrections to decide, you know, if either of them posed enough of a safety risk that they needed to go to Long Creek, which under the law... They didn't, so they'd be released and issued a date to appear in court down the road. And in the meantime, they would just keep getting into trouble.
1: I was thinking, oh, you know, I'm getting all these charges and nothing's happening. I'll be fine.
27: Rockland Chief of Police Tim Carroll says his officers got frustrated encountering the same teens over and over.
29: Once we take the kids into custody, it's a matter of paperwork and they're back out and they're laughing on their way out the door.
27: Chief Carroll, he worries about how to put an end to chronic law and worried these kids aren't getting the help they need. And what is the state and, and the governor? What are they trying to do about it? Governor Mills declined to do an interview with me, but in a statement, a spokesman said that the governor has invested in these kinds of programs like restorative justice, mentorship, behavioral health, but acknowledges that a lot more work needs to be done. There have been some lawmakers that have continued to propose reforms, but there isn't as much energy around this topic as a few years ago. I want to emphasize that what Maine has done in reducing its incarcerated population is a huge feat. The state just has a lot of unfinished
0: business with creating more alternatives. Callie Ferguson is a reporter with the Bangor Daily News and a New York Times reporting fellow. Thank you very much. Thanks.
18: WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around, let's feast.
4: I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: The House passes a $78 billion bipartisan bill that would expand the child tax credit and restore some corporate tax breaks. It's Thursday, February 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up, tech CEOs who testified on Capitol Hill yesterday faced blistering criticism for failing to protect children.
9: Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean to it to be so, but you have blood on your hands.
0: Also this hour, the head of a charity that offers medical services to Palestinians in Gaza says help is desperately needed.
30: It is an urgent need, but nobody's thinking about it because people are thinking about how to provide water and food for their children.
0: Plus, a disagreement between TikTok and Universal Music Group may mean music by some of the world's most popular artists will no longer be available to use in videos. Cloudy in 40s today.
3: It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The European Union has sealed a deal on aid to Ukraine. EU leaders clinched the agreement just an hour after they began a summit. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports the deal came quickly after Hungary lifted its veto.
31: Hungary had been the only EU nation blocking the funding, which must be approved unanimously. Ahead of the summit, Estonian Prime Minister Kaja Kallas expressed her frustration at Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. I mean, Viktor definitely wants to be the center of attention every time we are here, uh, but it shouldn't be like this. To everyone's surprise, Hungary quickly reversed its stance to support the roughly $54 billion package which will help Kyiv keep its economy running in 2024 and sustain essential services such as health care, education, social protection and pensions. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris.
3: The European Union's aid to Ukraine comes as American aid to Ukraine stalls in Congress. Republicans say they won't pass foreign aid to help Ukraine or Israel unless Congress and the President first deal with U.S. border security. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says lawmakers are still negotiating a bipartisan immigration bill to speed action on Ukraine relief.
23: We have not concluded negotiations, so we will keep going to get this done. Democrats have always been ready and willing to have a debate on the border. We want to get this done.
3: Meanwhile, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell has appeared to float the idea of splitting aid to Ukraine and Israel away from border security measures.
1: Had a lot of discussion, obviously, about the border around here, but it's important to focus on the other rationale for the supplemental. We've got two f- friends in the middle of a huge fight Israel, Ukraine. They need help.
3: But it's not clear if that view will win support from hardline congressional Republicans. In an overwhelming vote, the House has advanced a major tax package. It offers a three-year expansion of the child tax credit and significant business tax cuts. NPR's Eric McDaniel reports as many as half a million children could be lifted from poverty.
10: With a margin of 357 in favor to 70 opposed, this bill was popular. But because of an anti-compromise set of House Republicans who blocked a procedural step it also sort of had to be. It passed under something called suspension of the rules that requires a two-thirds vote of approval in the House. Bills usually just require a simple majority. And in addition to Republican opposition, some Democrats voted against it because of the more limited scope of the child tax credit expansion, which lifts fewer kids from poverty than a COVID-19 era version. Many Republicans, including Speaker Mike Johnson, were brought along to support by substantial tax cuts for corporations. Eric McDaniel, Pierre. News Washington.
3: This is NPR.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Schools are closed for a 10th day in Newton today as the teacher strength there continues. The union and city leaders are still negotiating a new contract. Newton School Committee members say the sides remain some $15 million apart on the agreement. Teachers are seeking increased funding for teachers' aides and student mental health supports. The Boston City Council has finally voted to accept a $13 million federal counterterrorism grant. Counselors had failed to pass the measure twice before. WBR Simone Rios has more on yesterday's vote.
20: The federal public safety grant is destined for Boston, along with Somerville, Chelsea, and other communities. But the Boston City Council has an oversight role, and several councillors said they didn't want to just rubber stamp a multi-million dollar expenditure. Councillor Ed Flynn cited the 2013 marathon bombing as one reason the council needed to pass the measure.
9: I just can't take the chance that we're sitting on this grant in some potential emergency disaster could take place. I'm really looking for this body to provide
20: leadership. All councillors voted in favor except for Liz Breeden of Brighton, who voted present. She says the city needs to exert more oversight of the program. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios.
0: City officials are working to determine the number of people currently living on the streets of Boston. The annual count of the unhoused population in the city took place last night. WBUR's Lynn Jolliger was there
26: people staying in doorways, uh, under boxes, behind piled up boxes, in sleeping bags, uh, with their belongings piled up on strollers and bicycles, settled in for the night, as many people do out here every night. And people told all different stories about what led to them being homeless.
0: This is the first count since the state's emergency shelter system hit capacity. Last year, Boston's census reported increases in both shelter populations and those on the streets. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission has picked one of its own to lead its Investigations and Enforcement Bureau. The bureau, known as IEB, helps monitor operations at gambling sites. It's also responsible for making sure casinos, their vendors, and employees are suitable to hold licenses. Adam Frenier reports.
9: The commission publicly interviewed two candidates, Caitlin Monahan, the interim director of the IEB, who is deputy general counsel for the agency and Robert Charette, the Chief Deputy U.S. Marshal for Rhode Island. Afterward, Commissioner Brad Hill said Monaghan's experience working for Mass Gaming gave
14: her an advantage. Her institutional knowledge, her relationships uh, with the people who she's uh, worked with and will be working with, I, I think gives
9: her a-, a leg up. And the vote was unanimous for Monahan. The selection is still subject to background and reference checks. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Franier.
11: It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car, Scrub-A-Dub, clean anytime you want.
0: The Celtics take on the Los Angeles Lakers tonight. Play starts at 7.30 at the Garden. Cloudy today and warmer with highs in the mid-40s. Still mostly cloudy tonight. Temperatures fall to lows around freezing. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy again. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening
12: to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
2: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin.
13: And I'm Layla Falden. European leaders have passed what is a delayed aid package for Ukraine. It allocates more than $50 billion to the country that has been at war since Russia's full-scale invasion in 2022. It comes at a time when a major shakeup appears to be in the works, as tensions between Ukraine's president and
2: top general have boiled over. And that general, who is well-respected by Ukraine's allies and beloved by Ukrainians, is at risk of losing his job. And that could divide the Ukrainian public at a crucial time as Ukrainian soldiers struggle to defend the front line with fewer resources from the West. Joining us now to talk about this is Joanna Kakisis in Kyiv. Hi, Joanna.
13: Hi, Leila. So let's start with this aid package that passed today. How does this affect Ukraine's war effort? So it's gonna be a huge boost.
31: Ukraine's gonna be able to pay for ammunition, for weapons. It's gonna be able to start economic programs, improve infrastructure, all these things that it doesn't have money for right now because it's spending all of its resources to fight Russia. Mm -hmm. And this package was held up in December by only one vote, Hungary's pro-Kremlin Prime Minister Viktor Orban. The EU and Ukraine lobbied Orban to lift that veto and they finally managed to do that. Several European leaders, including German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. They're admitting that they have let down Ukraine in other areas by not following through on other promises like Mm -hmm. delivering a million artillery ammunition rounds last year. The EU is now hoping to send just half of that by next month at the earliest. Russia, by the way, is firing three or four times more ammunition than Ukraine and the Ukrainians are forced to ration
13: ammunition. They're trying to hang on to their positions even as they fire fewer rounds. So it sounds like, as you said, it's going to be a big boost but they want more and the aid from the U.S. is still in limbo, and it's coming at a time of internal turmoil in leadership there. What's behind this feud between the president and this top general? President Volodymyr Zelensky
31: has had problems for months with General Volodymyr Zelensky, the military chief he appointed in 2021, and that was before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian media and analysts have said that Zelensky wants a military chief who is more loyal to him. Zelensky has publicly contradicted Zelensky's narrative on the war. And remember, Zelensky is a former actor with a powerful communication sense. He's been telling Ukrainians that the country is slowly but surely heading to victory against Russian invaders, while Zelensky, he is a lifelong military man. He's a realist. Mm. The war is now about to enter its third year and the front line is barely moved. Uh, he says it's a stalemate. Now, Zelensky's spokesman has denied that Zelensky has been dismissed, but a source close to the government confirmed to NPR that Zelensky did ask Zeluzhny to resign earlier this week, but that the general refused. Zelensky can also fire Zelensky outright. As president, he has the right to do that, but that likely means a very public backlash.
13: And we describe Zelensky as beloved. I mean, if you could just tell me how popular is he with Ukrainians? So General Zeluzhny is more
31: popular than President Zelensky in some Mm. public opinion polls, sometimes a lot more popular. Under Zeluzhny's military leadership, Ukraine was able to defend itself uh, in the early days of the war. And Zeluzhny also led counteroffensives in 2022 that pushed Russian troops out of large parts of occupied land. Ukrainians call him a hero. I haven't met a single Ukrainian who does not rave about him. Mm. And the soldiers I've met worship him. They say they trust him with their lives. They talk about how moved they were when he knelt at the coffin of a young and well-known fallen soldier. They tell me he cares about us. So if Zelensky does fire Zeluzny, it would be very unpopular. And that would be good news for Russia. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry paskov predicted to reporters that divisions between Ukraine's civilian and military leadership will only grow as Russia's war on the country continues.
13: NPR's Joanna Kakasis in Kiev. Thank you, Joanna. You're welcome.
29: This meeting of the Senate Judiciary Committee will come to order.
2: That's Senator Dick Durbin opening a contentious hearing yesterday on a subject he said was top of mind for many, if not most, American families. How to keep our kids safe from sexual exploitation and harm in the Internet age. A bipartisan panel of senators that included Lindsey Graham, Marsha Blackburn, Sheldon Whitehouse, and Josh Hawley lashed out at five top social media executives, including the founder of Facebook.
9: Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands.
31: It appears that you're trying to be the premier sex trafficking, of course site
12: not, Senator. In oh, this Senator, country. that's ridiculous. No,
31: is it Senator- is not
12: your platforms really suck
1: at policing themselves. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people?
2: Mark ZUCKERBERG did apologize, turning his back on the senators to tell families in the hearing room he is sorry for the harm that they have suffered. He also said his firm is building guardrails to keep kids safe online. But how dangerous is social media for kids? We called Dr. Megan Moreno to talk about this because she teaches medicine at the University of Wisconsin, and she's a co-medical director of a center at the American Academy of Pediatrics dedicated to social media and youth mental health. And she was at the White House yesterday to talk about kids' online safety and health. Dr. Moreno, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So, look, we understand that hearings are, you know, in part fact-finding, but in part theater, So there's a level of exaggeration that we've come to expect. But having said all that, what was your sense of the hearing? I mean, did it sort of accurately capture the picture or was there exaggeration there? I think it's a little bit
4: complicated because the risk for some kids, the risk was not exaggerated. There are kids that have been harmed and that is important to recognize, but it also shouldn't be taken that all kids are harmed, that there's a a universal risk that can be applied to every kid. And for some kids, social media is a lifeline and a huge benefit against other risks in their offline life.
2: What about this idea of age limits, like a hard age limit, setting a a limit on how old or young someone can be before they can use the internet without supervision? Is that kind of the right direction to take? I think that if we pin our hopes
4: on the idea that an age limit is going to solve so many of the areas that we're worried about with the internet, I worry that that's a little bit too much of a blunt instrument. And I also worry because some kids, they're really not ready for social media at 13 or 16. But when you really set an age limit, it becomes sort of a goal-driven thing, kind of like driving or turning 21 and having your first drink. And it could actually drive more kids to engage
2: at ages when maybe they're not ready. Mm, I understand what you're saying, especially that analogy to driving. Some kids are ready to drive at 16 and some maybe not. So what should parents look for in trying to figure out how and when to set those boundaries?
4: I think a really big part of the conversation for parents is recognizing that for teens, we know that over 90% of teens use the internet, use social media. But for adults uh, over 75% use social media and so I think a good starting place for parents is to take a deep breath and without blame, without shame, take a look at their own social media use and and think about what they're role modeling at home and whether they're present for their teen and able to have those conversations about, you know, what are you doing on social media? What are you getting out of it? What are you worried about? And really being able to open up those channels of communication.
2: And are there specific danger signs that a kid is in trouble and that what they're seeing online may be a big factor. I think with teens a lot of the danger signs are pretty similar
4: across teens, withdrawing from their friends, not doing things that they used to really enjoy, you know, not engaging in activities they used to they used to really enjoy, but I think the trick for parents is not to jump to a conclusion about what the cause of that might be and really being being able to sit with your teen and listen to
2: what they're worried about. That is Dr. Megan Moreno. She's with the American Academy of Pediatrics Center for Excellence on Social Media and Youth Mental Health. Dr. Moreno, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this expertise with us. Thank you so much.
13: People in South Tampa, Florida, have been hearing a noise that sounds something like this. Some residents say it wakes up their kids and shakes their windows, others can barely hear it. As NPR's Nina Kravinsky reports, what's making that sound is a mystery. South Tampa resident Sarah Healy describes the sound
25: as more of a feeling. If you've ever been close to a subwoofer or something at a big concert, you just feel that vibration, you know, in your core. Healy leads a Facebook group, of area Moms, who are desperate to figure out where this vibration is coming from. It's a big deal when it happens because everybody all the way across the peninsula, from north to southeast to west, they hear it or they hear something and people just kind of get on there and compare notes. On Facebook, the moms speculate. Maybe it's a party barge in the bay. Maybe it's secret testing at the nearby Air Force Base.
29: It's unknown and it's unnerving. It's spooky. It's in your house at night you feel like the the walls are vibrating.
25: That's James Lucasio. He's an underwater acoustics expert Healy has teamed up with to try to figure out what's going on.
29: It's an urban mystery in this case, and so um, an investigation is always uh, fun for most people.
25: When he first heard about South Tampa's mystery, Lucasio suspected right away the sound was coming from underwater, specifically from a specific kind of fish. It's called the black drumfish, and as part of their mating process, they flex a special muscle called the sonic muscle against their swim bladder.
29: The swim bladder is the drum. The sonic muscle is the drumstick.
25: When a bunch of black drumfish get together during mating season, the sound can get loud enough to hear from on land. Sarah Healy has raised more than $2,000 on GoFundMe so that Lucasio can conduct his investigation. He wants to put his recording equipment underwater to figure out if the mystery sound really is a bunch of frisky black drumfish. And neighbors on the shore will take notes on what they're hearing.
29: From my perspective, engaging the community and having a citizen science opportunity, it can be something that just opens up more information about what's going on right in your own backyard and within your community.
25: And maybe, just maybe, it'll shed a little light on what's going on at the bottom of the bay. Nina Kravinsky, NPR News. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBR. We're following news this morning of a massive bipartisan bill passed by the U.S. House that would expand the child tax credit and restore corporate tax breaks. Also, European Union leaders have reached an agreement to create a $54 billion fund for Ukraine. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a Palestinian aid worker describes daily life in the north of Gaza, where he's trying to provide medical services to thousands of injured people amid a lack of water, power, and fuel. It's 8.20.
20: Hello, this is Simone Rios. I'm a reporter here at WBUR, and this is my daughter, Gabby. It was New Year's Eve of 2022, and Gabby showed up unexpectedly to a performance of mine in Boston's South End. On the spot, she agreed to get in front of the mic and sing this beautiful Uruguayan song called Inoportuna. On this Valentine's Day, I want to share this story of love and music with our WBUR family. Whether it's with our voices or with a bouquet of roses from Winston Flowers, This is the time when we can express our love for the people closest to us. And if you do choose flowers this Valentine's Day, consider sending them from WBUR to support our journalism and lift all our voices. Check out the offerings at WBUR.org.
0: Highs in the mid-40s today under overcast skies. It falls to the low 30s tonight and the clouds stick around. Still mostly cloudy to end the week tomorrow. We'll have highs in the low 40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston.
16: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Fisher Investments, Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. Fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is
2: Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been bussing tens of thousands of migrants from the southern border to places like Chicago, Denver, and New York. Officials in those cities have been scrambling to help the new arrivals find shelter and food, but there is also an urgent need for mental health care. WBEZ's Kristen Schorsch reports on efforts to help migrants deal with everything they have experienced.
8: Jorge Rubiano arrived alone in Chicago. But his pain and trauma came with him back home in colombia he says he faced death threats over a land dispute on his journey to the u.s he was kidnapped for a month and when his mom got really sick he was far away unable to help even now violence threatens the family he left behind
3: Antes reunirme con ustedes,
30: I hablando con mi esposa. But for example, before you guys came, I was talking with my wife. And she had to cut the connection on the phone because somebody got on the bus and was robbing the bus.
8: I met Rubiano on a bench outside a shelter. My colleague Manuel Martinez translated.
30: He says that he's had a lot of time to think about it, but that he's still stuck in this,
29: these two difficult places. If he returns, there's a the likelihood that he'll get killed. And if he stays here, he doesn't know what's going to happen.
8: The thousands of migrants arriving in Chicago are fleeing little work or food back home, and violence. And for many, their journeys here were treacherous. Here's social worker Sharon Davila.
4: Every single one of them had an experience that we would consider traumatic. They'll say like, oh, everything's okay, but I do worry that she saw me almost drowning. A preschooler who fell into the river
24: and she landed on her back and while they were crossing the bridge where the current is the strongest and the waves were high.
4: The mom is telling me, you know, and she's, the mom is pregnant, and she's holding on to her daughter's hand.
8: In other cases, women are forced to have sex with gangs to get from country to country. When migrants arrive, mental health care just isn't a priority. People are in survival mode. They are desperate for work. Laora Papa is a psychologist in Chicago. A lot of people were not expecting that, how hard it is on this side. You know, I've had a lot of parents who've come alone, and ask themselves, you know, was it worth it to leave my kids? That's not necessarily something I can answer, but I can totally empathize with the pain. Papa came to the U.S. from Argentina as a teenager. She says not dealing with trauma can have ripple effects. Trauma can change the wiring in your brain and make you more vulnerable to depression and anxiety. It can even affect your physical health. But migrants face many barriers when it comes to getting help. There's a lot of taboo in our culture around mental health men are significantly less likely to disclose even negative mood, let alone trauma. And there's a persistent shortage of mental health providers. Getting an appointment can take months. Then later on being new to this country, speaking a different language, having no health insurance, and finding someone who understands your culture. That's if you even know help exists. But now there's an army of volunteers and others stepping up to help. It's a Monday night in the back of an insurance agency on Chicago's southwest side. Social worker Veronica Sanchez is about to lead a healing circle. Around 20 migrants pull up chairs. You can smell the dinner that awaits them, arepas and homemade chicken soup. Sanchez asks how they're doing. A woman says her husband was deported, and she's heartbroken she left her children back home. A man says he worked several days that week but never got paid. Another says he is grateful to God for bringing him to America, but he misses his mom, dad, and brothers. Sanchez listens and offers feedback. Sanchez tells them getting a job and reuniting with family is important, but she's concerned about their mental health. She says the Healing Circle is a safe space to share their emotions, despairs, and questions. That here, they won't feel so alone. Sanchez says creating community and connections can empower the migrants. She understands what they're going through. I was seeing the migrants' faces that they were so scared. I'm pretty sure my parents
25: went through that same process of not knowing what was gonna happen, not knowing if he was gonna come back, not knowing if he was gonna find a job, not knowing if he was gonna have enough to send money back to us for us to survive.
8: Sanchez grew up in Mexico. Her father left to work in the U.S. when she was four years old. She didn't see her dad for almost seven years when he brought his family to Cicero, a suburb just outside Chicago. Many of these support groups don't last long. Volunteers get burned out. Migrants prioritize other needs. Or the city moves them from place to place. Many who work with migrants worry about their suicide risk. That has helped fuel a bigger effort in Chicago that other cities have asked to replicate. So coffee and community small groups. Amy Halado leads the Coalition for Immigrant Mental Health, which has launched these CHARLAs, or support groups. The Coalition, along with other partners, has helped train hundreds of people who don't have a medical background to lead CHARLAs in city-run shelters. We have to help people the minute they arrive, and that's actually gonna promote healing down the line. The CHARLAs are being paid for with private and public funds, and the Coalition has asked Illinois for more money to keep them going. As we talk on the bench outside his shelter, I ask Jorge Rubiano if he's gone to a support group. He says no. But he tries to keep busy working on his English. He's reading The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Call of the Wild. And he's finally found a full-time job in a supermarket. He longs for his family, for the chance to bring them here.
30: There are days
29: where he's just like, I'm done, I'm leaving. And there are other days where he just spends a lot of time reflecting, and he realizes that not everything is bad.
8: For NPR News,
2: I'm Kristen Schorsch in Chicago. This story comes from NPR's partnership with WBEZ and KFF Health News. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, you can call or text three numbers, 988, just those three numbers, 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. And please know the 988 Lifeline offers Spanish-language call, text, and chat services as well. This is NPR News. Today's
0: top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, why one northern Montana school district remains loyal to its electric school buses, despite those vehicles losing credibility in many other states, as people discover they take much longer to recharge when it's cold. It's at
22: 8, 8.30. 8.30. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR, HabibARCH.com, and MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The European Union has approved a large aid package for Ukraine. At a summit in Brussels today, the EU's 27 members signed off on a $54 billion package of military and economic assistance to Kyiv. Lithuania's president, Gitanas Nauseda says it's important that Europe supports Ukraine.
3: Ukraine, this is just the first defense line. So this is very important to keep this first defense line strong.
6: Hungary's President Viktor Orban, an ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, voted in favor of the EU's aid package after previously holding it up. President Biden is traveling to Michigan today, where he's expected to meet with members of the United Auto Workers days after the UAW endorsed the president's re-election bid. The president joined a union picket line last year during the UAW's six-week strike. The Department of Health and Human Services says it's begun negotiating with pharmaceutical companies on prices for 10 prescription drugs offered in Medicare. Javier Becerra is the secretary of HHS.
20: There will be companies who know they'll be able to compete with some of the brand name uh, pharma companies who are able to somehow, you know, muscle everyone out of the market. The more competition, the more innovation. The more innovation, the better the price.
6: This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. State and federal officials are expressing increasing concern about the fate of Stewart Healthcare's nine hospitals in Massachusetts. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports.
28: Representative Stephen Lynch says Stewart executives told congressional staffers last week the company plans to leave Massachusetts.
9: And they expressed
1: their intent to exit the Massachusetts health care market.
28: Lynch says Stewart executives indicated that four of its Massachusetts hospitals may have to close soon. Stewart did not respond to requests for comment. State officials say they are meeting to discuss ways to protect health care and preserve jobs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
0: Officials in Maine are trying to keep mentally ill adolescents from ending up in the juvenile justice system, but a shortage of programs for at-risk teens has left police and parents using emergency rooms. More now from Callie Ferguson of The New York Times in collaboration with The Banger Daily News.
27: Penn Bay Medical Center in Rockport is seeing unlikely patients come to its emergency room, violent teens with mental health problems. Last fall, it created a locked unit to handle the surge. Near Harish, a physician at Penn Bay, says he feels like he's running a correctional facility for violent youth.
10: You bring me someone with a heart attack, I know what I need to do and I have the resources to do it. You bring me a kid who's punching their mom, we don't have the tools for it.
27: Harish says some wait weeks for long-term treatment elsewhere. Maine officials say they are trying to fix the shortage of behavioral and mental health services. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Callie Ferguson.
0: Transit advocates are pressing T officials to expand reduced fare rates for low-income riders. The transit agency hosts one of eight public meetings on the issue tonight in Dorchester. The MBTA is considering a proposal to expand eligibility for the public transit program to 200 percent of the poverty line. If approved, the new program would begin later this year. It's 834.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. It's not clear whether
0: LeBron James will take to the court tonight. He's got an ankle injury. With or without him, the Los Angeles Lakers play against the top-ranked Celtics at the Garden. Tip-off is at 730. Cloudy with highs in the mid-40s today. Temperatures fall to the low 30s tonight, and the clouds stick around. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
16: Support for NPR comes from the station, and from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series, including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org and from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is Morning Edition
2: from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Falden. We've been speaking to
13: Palestinians about their vision for a future in Gaza. Yesterday, you heard from a storyteller, a journalist who left Gaza some two months into the war. Today, we turn to a humanitarian, one of the few left in the north of the Gaza Strip where nearly every building is partially or fully destroyed. On a spotty line from his rooftop, Mahmoud Chalabi of Medical Aid for Palestinians tried to imagine a future while living through this war.
30: Now, I'm afraid that there will be no schools for two years to come. So, frankly speaking, I'm not sure what the future is looking like for Gaza. Hmm. When is this going to end is the first question that comes to my mind and my wife's mind because we have been exhausted mentally, physically. We need all of us in Gaza, no exceptions. We all need psychiatrists after this war ends because we all have mental scars that will last with us for years. However, at Medical Aid for Palestinians, we are doing our best mm-hmm. to try and resume our humanitarian work as much as possible. I'm the only one of all my colleagues who remains in the north of Gaza. However, the needs are humongous, and whatever we do is only going to be a drop in the ocean.
13: Can you tell me a little bit about daily life? What are you going through?
30: You can imagine the horrors. F 16s, arterial shells, sound bombs, quadcopters, you name it. Everything you hear in the news we have been able to witness, and it was really something out of a horror movie. If I want to describe the daily life routine that I go through. Yeah. So there are no water pipes, there are no electricity pools, there are no mobile phone towers, no electricity. So we have to secure water. We walk hundreds of meters to secure potable water, water for just washing your body and you know for hygienic purposes. And I was speaking today with a technician And he said it will take up to five years just to return to the previous status quo of having electricity. So just we will have to wait five years to have like a single light in our houses.
13: I would love to hear a little bit about the level of need, including mental
30: health care access. Health has collapsed. Mental health is another story. In general, mental health was an ignored issue in Gaza Strip. It is an urgent need. But again, nobody's thinking about it because people are thinking about how to provide water and food for their children. As humanitarians, we need to be able to find secure places and internet connections, electricity, fuel to run generators and be able to go via taxis from X to Z location and speak with health authorities and all of that, which is mission impossible. Right now, I barely am able to do it.
13: What are your conversations like with your kids right now?
30: My children have started missing their schools. Mm. They have started missing their friends. Some of their friends have actually died uh, during the war, but we didn't tell them. Mm. Zach, who's nine years old, started asking me like, can we leave the country Dad? when this is over? Which is really tough. He's nine years old. He came to me one day with tears in his eyes and asked me, dad, have I been a bad boy or not? And I said, no, you have been a great uh, boy. And I said, why are you asking this? Because he said, if I die, will I go to hell or heaven? Hmm. And I honestly didn't know how to answer. And my wife jumped in immediately and she said, we'll all go to heaven, my son.
13: That was Mahmoud Shalabi, Senior Program Manager of Medical Aid for Palestinians, Gaza. TikTok users are waking up to a new reality this morning. The world's largest music company is pulling its catalog
2: from the social media platform TikTok. The move by Universal Music Group coincides with contract negotiations that have gone public and become acrimonious. The impact across the music industry could be huge.
13: Here with us to discuss the conflict is Stephen Thompson from NPR Music. Welcome back, Stephen.
17: Thank you so much for having me.
13: Okay, so how big a deal is this? I mean, what type of artists? How much music is affected here?
17: Well, we're talking about some of the biggest artists in the world. The tendrils of Universal Music Group extend to countless big-name stars, Billie Eilish, BTS, Mm. Drake, Lady Gaga. I could fill this entire segment just listing names, but I do have to note that Taylor Swift's music is also included here. In 2024, every news story about music has to include at least one mention of Taylor Swift that is practically the law.
13: (laughs) I feel like that's true. Posts on TikTok often have a lot of music in them, so how would this process
17: work? Well, TikTok has license agreements with labels and artists, so users can access a searchable library of authorized songs. So the first universal move here is to simply demand that its library be removed from what TikTok can offer. It's not necessarily a matter of throwing a switch, but that's the first step. From there, you're looking at things like takedown notices, old posts getting blocked because they have unauthorized music in them, that sort of thing. It'll be kind of piecemeal. That's going to unfold over time, depending on how contract negotiations play out.
13: Okay, so wait, are we eventually going to be seeing all these TikTok dance challenge videos with just people dancing in silence?
17: (laughs) Well, it'll depend on how long this drags out. It'll depend on the song and the artist that we're talking about. I do like the idea of people sort of shuffling in silence, but those (laughs) those videos are are more likely to just be blocked. So users will see broken links instead of Mm. the dance moves they crave. So what are Universal's demands? What do they want? Well, the open letter that they put out names what it calls three critical issues, and those issues are compensation, how much money TikTok pays Universal and its artists, plus artificial intelligence and online safety. And those those are all huge issues. TikTok's CEO was just grilled in Senate hearings about online safety as recently as yesterday, but I suspect that what Universal really wants here is a lot more money to grant access to its catalog, plus reassurance that TikTok is combating AI simulations of its artists' music and likenesses. The entire entertainment industry is very concerned about AI rendering human artists obsolete as technology improves. Now, it's also worth noting that in the short term, this does have a serious impact on Universal's artists. Universal's open letter says that TikTok accounts for about 1% of its revenue, but it's not just a matter of the royalties TikTok pays out. TikTok is a major source of exposure for artists, especially people who aren't household names. And TikTok streams are factored into things like the Billboard Hot 100, so the stakes are high. Has TikTok responded to the demands? Well, TikTok released a statement that accused Universal of putting greed ahead of the interests of its artists, basically saying they're denying them this huge promotional platform, which doesn't really speak to most of the issues in Universal's open letter. It may seem like a simple contract negotiation with two sides arguing over money, but the gray areas are huge and the larger issues aren't going away.
13: NPR Steven Thompson, of course, mentioning Taylor Swift in this music story. Thanks
19: for your time, Stephen.
23: <laughs> Thank you, Leila. <laughs>
13: This is NPR
0: News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at what's behind the Department of Education's delays rolling out the new FAFSA. Schools and students will now have to wait until March for results they'd been expecting by the end of January. Overcast in mid-40s today, mostly cloudy and low 30s tonight. Low 40s for a Friday tomorrow and still mostly cloudy. It's 36 degrees in Boston.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov.
0: A Cambridge biotech startup plans to sell its oncology and autoimmune research and development programs. 270 Bio will also sell its manufacturing technology to New York biotech Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. The company will instead focus exclusively on its treatment for a rare type of blood cancer. Many of the company's employees will move over to Regeneron with the sale. A Boston-based biotech focused on cell therapies to treat cancer is winding down its operations. Catamaran Bio says it's looking for ways to stay in business. Company leaders say they've been having trouble securing financing. Boston has a new interactive art museum. The Wonder Museum opens downtown today. The museum will have an artist-in-residence and host pop-ups and yoga classes. This is Wonder's latest U.S. location. It recently opened museums in Chicago and San Diego. It's 844.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go.
12: In cities across the country, violent crime is dropping. So why do many Americans feel less safe?
20: Crime affects people very
9: personally. So the only way to get people to change their perceptions on a macro scale is for progress to continue.
12: I'm Ari Shapiro. We unpack the statistics and get the view from three cities on all things considered from NPR News.
22: Listen today starting
13: at four on 90.9
22: WBUR.
2: It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel, And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Frigid weather this winter has been causing problems for some electric vehicle owners who find that their cars do not do well in the cold. Now, that might make some school districts think twice about switching to electric buses, something the Biden administration is pushing with a variety of incentives. But one district in Montana finds that its electric buses do keep running even when temperatures fall far below zero. Montana Public Radio's Ellis Julin has this report.
19: Last year, Montana's conservative state legislature was considering new taxes on electric vehicles and chargers.
26: Obviously, I think most of us recognize that electric vehicles are not very practical for the state of Montana, especially in rural areas.
19: State Representative Ed Butcher is skeptical of them.
26: They're interesting toys. If you got $100,000 you don't know what to do with, you can go buy one. But you might get stranded.
19: At the same time, 203 miles north of the capital, in the little town of Haver, EV school buses were undergoing a real-world test. It gets cold up there, just this side of the Canadian border, and dropped to minus 44 degrees in January's polar vortex.
9: And with the wind chill, it got as low as 60 below zero.
19: Paul Tuss, also a state lawmaker, is from Haver, population 10,000. And he loves it.
9: A lot of folks think of Montana as what they've experienced over the last couple of years when they watch Yellowstone. That's not Haver, Montana.
19: He calls it Frontier, Montana, where cows outnumber people. Inside the Haver Public Schools bus barn, Alan Woodwick, or Woody, is getting one of the big yellow electric school buses ready for afternoon pickups. He was born and raised in Haver and has a big white beard that makes him look kind of like Santa Claus.
2: The noise you hear is that Air compressor pumping up the air seat. There it is. There. That's the engine running. That's what you hear. That's it.
19: Woody is the fleet manager here. A few years ago, when the school was in the market for two new buses, he applied for money from the state, from the big national settlement with Volkswagen over faked diesel emissions tests. They got the funding, and Haver was able to buy two electric buses and charging systems for less than the price of one gas bus.
2: There was a lot of people that said you couldn't run electrics up in in Montana, so (laughs) that was somewhat of a challenge. And it looks like we've been proving the simple fact is, yes, we can.
19: Haver was the first district in Montana to get electric buses, and it's been running them for a year now. Woody says they run great, sometimes even better than their diesel and gas counterparts. And they handled those recent minus 40 degree temperatures just fine, Nationwide, the Biden administration set aside hundreds of millions of dollars for electric vehicles as part of the infrastructure law of 2021. And in January, the White House allocated another nearly $1 billion to help schools replace diesel buses with electric.
2: We're going to find out here
22: in the next week or so, a couple okay. weeks, I guess. Uh, next week is when the, uh,
2: the grant application process ends, and we are putting in for two more.
19: Woody says the cost savings make sense for a small district. Haver transports 3,500 students a day on its buses. Even with charging, the electric bus's per mile cost is half or a quarter of the cost for a gas or diesel bus. For NPR News, I'm Ellis Julin in Haver, Montana.
2: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faudel.
0: coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR it's the BBC news hour they'll tell us about the so-called silent strike in Myanmar streets and public transit there are quiet as people mark the 3rd anniversary of the country's military coup by staying at home it's
22: 8:49 wbur supporters include the John S and James L Knight Foundation helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age Informed Communities, Essential for Healthy Democracy. KF.org and Bridgewater State University. Ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list bridgew.edu. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that have a meaningful impact across our community. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England and your support will bring you stories that matter to you. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're
0: following this Thursday morning. The European Union will provide 50 billion euros to Ukraine to help support the country amid its ongoing war with Russia. Millions of people in California face a risk of flooding as storms hit the Pacific Northwest this week. And hundreds of farmers are in Brussels today as part of rallies in Europe protesting costs and regulations. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
22: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Mid-40s and cloudy today. Still overcast
0: tonight as temperatures fall to around freezing. Low 40s to end the week tomorrow. It'll be mostly cloudy. It's 36 degrees in Boston.
9: Verdicts on financial aid are being delayed
3: into next month for millions of college applicants. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial
22: picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.
9: I'm David Brancaccio. Students and parents waiting to hear if they can pay for college have run into a new frustrating hurdle. Many will have to wait longer until March to get the calculation on financial aid. The Department of Education needs extra time to fix an inflation calculation error in the new financial aid application, the FAFSA. As Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes reports, the delay is stressing out everyone involved in getting people into college.
26: In a normal year, prospective college students would already be getting some financial aid offers from schools. But without the FAFSA data, schools can't calculate those offers. Jennifer Jesse is a college admissions consultant in the D.C. area. The offer letter tells the truth for the first time. The truth about what the actual price tag for each college will be. And the most recent delay means counselors will have at least a month less than they expected to go over what's a loan, what's a grant, what's a scholarship.
9: Money comes in a lot of different forms from colleges that can be difficult to understand at 17.
26: Alex Rigney is a college counselor at a technology magnet high school in New York City. He says the FAFSA delays may prompt some students to decide not to go to college at all this year.
9: It's a delicate dance to begin with, so I think any additional barriers is only going to make that more challenging.
26: Some professional associations of higher ed officials are calling for colleges to extend their enrollment deadlines. That would give schools more time to send those financial aid offers and students more time to digest them. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace.
9: No surprise, but the Federal Reserve has left interest rates alone at the conclusion of their meetings yesterday. If data show inflation staying under control between now and the next meeting, March 19th and 20th, policymakers might start lowering interest rates then, but Jerome Powell, Fed Chair, was not encouraging on this point.
17: I don't think
6: it's likely that the committee will reach a level of confidence by the time of the March meeting to identify March as the time to do that, but that's that's to be seen.
9: The benchmark 10 year interest rate, which had been above 4% for more than two weeks, is down at 3.94% now. I see SP futures are up 3 tenths percent, NASDAQ futures up 5 tenths percent.
3: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination free, LLM agnostic, IP liability free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by the podcast Ripple, a new investigative podcast from Western Sound and APM Studios. Listen now to Ripple.
9: On this first day of Black History Month, let's hear about a powerful but not widely known figure in the civil rights movement. Special correspondent Lee Hawkins has this profile of a man who worked behind the scenes with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others on the economic side of the
23: movement. Behind every great leader, there are often unsung heroes. In this case, Black American entrepreneur Arthur George Gaston, also known as A.G. Gaston. He mostly shunned the spotlight and wasn't one to march or deliver speeches at rallies. But the Alabama native and grandson of slaves wrote plenty of checks. While King was a social activist, A.G. Gaston was an economic activist. He spent more than 70 years investing millions of dollars into the civil rights movement and Black America
21: find a need and feel
23: it his granddaughter rochelle gaston malone says his business strategy was rooted in the fact that jim crow era businesses just about every sector used segregationist practices and policies that didn't accommodate blacks or weren't fair or equitable ag gaston capitalized on the opportunity to form businesses that treated blacks with the dignity they deserved combining altruism with capitalism guided by another simple mantra
21: a part of all you earn is yours to keep Uh, my grandfather truly understood that it was important for us as african americans to earn a living for our families
23: he built a diversified company in birmingham that included insurance real estate a motel and construction among other divisions in 1957, he founded the Citizens Federal Savings and Loan Association, the first black-owned bank in Birmingham. He used his profits and his business acumen to quietly promote social justice.
21: He wasn't in the, on the forefront, you know, uh, marching or uh, on the front lines in, in that capacity. But he understood that there needed to be someone who could serve as a liaison between those powers that be who made the decisions as to um, help provide the outcomes that we as African-American people were um, searching to receive through the marches and through, through all of the demonstrations.
23: But even as he created jobs, provided accommodations and made insurance generated wealth within reach for generations of black American families, He was criticized by some in the black community who believed he was too close to people in the white power structure and took the fact that he was never at marches preaching through a bullhorn to mean he wasn't committed to the movement. Some also criticized him for bailing protesters out of jail, thinking it undermined their efforts. Reverend Joseph Lowry a longtime civil rights activist with King and president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, defended Gaston, saying, quote, everyone has a role to play. His role was a supportive role. Some people have to beat the drum while others marched. A.G. Gaston died in 1996 at 103 years old. For Rochelle Gaston Malone, The ultimate way to honor her grandfather would be to immortalize his name in the district that housed some of the businesses, churches, and community buildings that relied on Gaston for early funding. His family has been working to get a street named after him, and also a park that sits amongst the financial hub Gaston created. A legacy for the man who planted the trees of black economic success in Birmingham. I'm Lee Hawkins for Marketplace.
9: Lee Hawkins has a podcast in development for our APM Studios branch called What Happened in Alabama. It launches in May and is based on his forthcoming book, Nobody's Slave, How Uncovering My Family's History Set Me Free. I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
0: The Newton teachers' strike is keeping schools closed for a tenth day today. We're following negotiations for a new contract on 90.9 WBUR. Keep listening. We get a slight warm-up today to the mid-40s, and it'll be cloudy. Still cloudy tonight, and it'll fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow we end the week with a mostly cloudy Friday in the low 40s. It's 36 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next.
22: I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.